If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story an evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal movement. Mormonism, counterfeit Christianity. Turn or burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. into our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host. I'm director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater. And I'm in studio today with a very special guest of mine, Rob Zins. Rob, great to have you here. Thank you, Larry. Good to be here again. Uh, yes, for the last 29 years now. <laughs> so, and you so, haven't kicked me out yet. That's right. That's a uh, world's record right yeah, there. As long as you stick with the Bible and what the Bible teaches. You've earned your spot. You there see. you go. You just haven't blown it, you know. <laughs> so, and, Lord willing, we won't today. And, and I have a feeling you're going to persevere to the end, because that's what true Christians do. That's so, right. I'm really not worried about you, so I think you'll make it. All right, bro. Well, uh, we're in studio here to, well, I guess what I ought to do before I get to the main topic is just have you introduce a little bit about yourself for new viewers. We're always getting new subscribers and new viewers, so mm -hmm. uh, what do you have to say for yourself, uh, theologically speaking, to make you qualified to talk about this theological subject we'll discuss today? Well, thank you, Larry. Uh, I, I must say, for those who have never watched you and I work together, that I have had an opportunity to do this for a number of years, as you say, and uh, I think having been in the pastoral ministry for 23 years and, and having an opportunity for the past almost 30 years to do apologetics ministries and especially in the field of Roman Catholicism, 
The name of my ministry is a Christian witness to Roman Catholicism, CWRC. If you type in CWRC on Google, we'll come right up, homepage, come see what we have. Lots of good stuff on the differences between the Roman Catholic religion and biblical Christianity. And uh, of course, uh, in, in that kind of ministry, you're not the most popular person in the world, but uh, we're not trying to be popular, we're trying to be right. We're trying to understand the Word of God and to divide it rightly and to give a defense of the hope that God has placed in us to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ against cults and uh, foreign religions. So it's uh, sometimes a very trying, a very exacting work, but nevertheless very rewarding and comforting work uh, to know that the Lord is with us whenever we stand up for His Word and His gospel. And so... Uh, this topic today is uh, the kind of topic that I think that people should begin to investigate, try to understand better, put your thinking caps on, open your scriptures, have a look at what we're looking at in scripture, and join us as we study together yeah. to try to uh, to expose error, try to uh, point out where people have made mistakes in understanding what the Bible has to say. And we've got a doozy here with the Grace Evangelical Society. So. That's right, that's right. In fact, uh, the initials for Grace Evangelical Society is G-E-S. Right. And in fact, uh, we have already done a video in the past on G-E-S. Uh, I guess now we call it part one. <laughs> and this is going to be part two. Part two. Uh, it's interesting, too, and I was saying this before we went on camera, that uh, when I posted that first video on GES, it seemed like within an hour after it was public in public view on YouTube, that someone from GES already nailed our video with a comment, calling us false prophets and all this stuff and right. some uh, really derogatory language. And of course, uh, uh, I was amazed at how fast that happened. You know, usually. The video will be up for several hours before something like that. They, they just seem to know they're being talked about. Right. <laughs> they, they honed in on us right away and gave us a negative comment on our uh, on our, uh, our YouTube video and a dislike. Right. So apparently these guys dislike you. Right? Well, they don't think highly of me. The reason we're doing this second video is because they posted a video on YouTube. It's well over an hour long. and one Did it have you in the video? It Did had my voice. In oh, it had video. your voice. My voice in the video. They were they were trying to respond to the video that we made. Yeah. But it was an unkind response, and I hope that uh, I'm not that way. I hope I can be uh, a little bit more kind in my response because I don't think we have to get into an ad hominem. That's what they argument. did on my on our video yeah. in the comments. Yeah. Just ad hominem attacks. Yeah, attack attack against the person, and so. Um, we've been labeled as works salvationists. We've been labeled as not understanding the Bible correctly. We certainly do not understand the book of James. We don't understand the original language of the Greek New Testament. We don't understand biblical theology or systematic theology. On and on they go. I think he's, he's not thinking clearly about the nature of faith, but, but let's keep on going. He thinks works are mandatory. So yeah, he's definitely a work salvation guy, uh, a backloading the gospel guy. So far, I, I don't think that this guy has really escaped his Catholicism. It's not in the text. That's something that people have added to the text, like this guy's adding to the text. 
Um, again, so he's definitely a work salvation guy. I mean, sometimes he's subtle, but sometimes he's not very subtle. And uh, what I'd like to do is kind of set the record straight here and quote directly from them once again and uh, let the world see this is what they're teaching. They need not be ashamed of what they're teaching if they really believe in it, but we need not tolerate it if it's heretical and wrong. Right. And I think it's wrong. Oh, yeah. We and proved that in the first video. Yeah, I think it's heretical. This is just going to be more of the same, showing that they are false prophets yeah. and they have a false gospel. And they're leading people astray into false assurance. I was sent a video from Bob Wilkin. Now, I suppose I should have queued up. Do we have the Wilkin debate up in video? We do. Okay. I should have probably should have queued some stuff up because where was that? I I know I, I, I thought it was somewhere in Oklahoma. Uh I don't remember exactly what year it was. Uh, it was before 2010, obviously. Uh, sometime between, what, 2005 and 2008, I would guess. Uh, I went down to Oklahoma, and I did a debate with Bob Wilkin. Now, Bob Wilkin is with the Grace... Evangelical Society, which is one of the primary promoters of what, well, anti-lordship salvation. And we haven't talked about this in a long time uh, because it, it was just such a distasteful experience on my part. Um, the the, the behavior of my opponent was significantly below what I expected for someone with his background. Let's just put it that way. It was, uh, it was difficult to, to keep breathing for all the straw men that were burning in the, uh, uh, in, in the, in the room. It was really, really tough. Fire alarms going off. It was, it was, it was bad. And, so we we have addressed it numerous times in the past. There have been a couple times. You know, it sort of bubbles up every once in a while. I have often said that it it has it is one of the main things that has hamstrung uh, a lot of conservative evangelicalism in the United States. I I consider it a not only a horrific error, but in its full blown form, a purely false gospel. Uh, just. Not not an issue of, well, you know, we've got our disagreements, but just straight out described in Scripture, uh, warned against, uh, completely out there, not my brother type stuff. So when I saw who it was that was answering this question about Calvinists and assurance, I'm like, oh, great. Uh, something tells me he's going to be going after uh, uh, Calvin and English Puritanism. And uh, yeah, he, he did the whole nine yards. But even mentioned me and uh, my inability to answer his questions. Well, I would invite anybody to watch the debate and you know, judge for yourself. It's a good, it's a good thing. Um, but um, I, I just... It, it's hard for people to understand. I had some people on Twitter that watched it and went, 
Well, that guy's an Arminian. He doesn't get it. No, no, um, he's not even an Arminian. Um, when the position they hold is that salvation is by a dead, spoken only faith alone. There's no repentance. There's not even a need for continuation of faith. As long as you make a statement of faith that Jesus died and rose again, your ticket's punched, you're going to heaven, you can go become a Buddhist, an axe murderer, whatever. Now, they don't suggest that you do this. And they will say that it's a good thing. It was 10 years ago, 2005. Okay. They will say that it's a good thing to repent and it's a good thing to live a holy life. But that's not what saves you. It is this, is it is an act of intellectual assent alone. They, they will go watch the debate. They attack... Um, Anything in regards to the fact that saving faith has more than one aspect to it, it is, if you want to see the most amazing example of the twisting of Scripture, listen to a Bob Wilkin or a Zane Hodges, um, any of these guys uh, deal with, James chapter 2. If you just want to see them implode, explode, whatever, uh, listen to their amazing abuse of James chapter 2. Because James chapter 2 is directly aimed at exactly their position. Because they are saying that a spoken faith alone, no repentance, no evidence of its continued continuing existence that saves you. And of course, one of the reasons that this movement has survived as long as it has is that if you're an Arminian, if you're a synergist, if you do not believe that saving faith is the work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the elect, if you don't believe that God has an elect people, if you don't believe he's accomplishing his particular purposes, according to the divine decree, etc., etc. You don't have a basis for really fighting against this. I mean, it's it's a gross caricature of the Reformation sola fide. It, it's a gross caricature. It's, it, is, it is so far removed from what sola fide actually meant um, that, it's, that it's laughable from a historical perspective. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, just in passing, one of the reasons that I really don't have much use um, for one particular, well, he would be identified as a Reformed writer, but I think if you're, if you're not even on the right page on this one, I'm not sure how you can be called Reformed. Um, but there was, there was one imbalanced person who I'd be identified as a Calvinist that these folks love to love to quote and that's why I don't really have any use for him uh, or those who follow after him which is why they tend to attack me a lot um, but aside from a very 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 
narrow outside the stream stream uh it has always been the reformed understanding that god saves his elect people for a purpose and that faith and repentance are both the works of the spirit of god in the heart of god's people and that christ is glorified in the fact that it is god's intention to conform his people to his image and you know all of the, the whole purposes of god in sanctification the whole purposes of of god in his own self-glorification so that repentance and faith are his gifts they're not things that we can boast in of ourselves they're not accomplishments that we have they're the result of the work of the spirit of god within us all of this from reform perspective is how you can remain balanced in talking about faith and repentance not turning them into things that we do that then add to the work of christ christ's work can't save unless you add these things in no the arminian though that that doesn't have all of this that doesn't have the work of the spirit of god and doesn't have the work of regeneration and and regeneration is something we can bring about by our own activities and so on and so forth the arminian is really in a tough spot uh to attempt to uh fight against the anti-lordship perspective but from a reform perspective it, it's its errors are just so obvious and so manifold and so many uh, that it's uh, it, it's truly amazing. So Bob Wilkin represents a position that says you're saved by faith without repentance. There is no repentance involved. It, it may have been the first thing Jesus preached, um, but John never mentions it. So therefore, and and that's where we had criticized, for example. I think the last time we really took this on was a, a local uh, thing in 2011 or 12. There was a local um, conference uh, of folks, and one of the primary speakers was anti-lordship, and we listened to some of his criticisms and and uh, responded at that time. That's probably the last time we actually got into this. But of course, these people are are strongly anti-reformed. Uh, they have to be for obvious reasons, be because of the fact uh, that if God is the one that's in charge of salvation, if God is the one who saves, if there is a particular elect people, if there is such a thing as regeneration, which is wrought by the Spirit of God, not the result of the actions of man, so on and so forth. Well, then their whole position is uh, is completely out there and and is refuted. So let's take a look. Uh, we'll go ahead. It's five and a half minutes, almost six minutes long. But let's uh, let's listen to the whole thing first, and then go back through it. It's posted on uh, on YouTube. I've given the uh, the URL a couple times so you can watch. Uh, here is uh, Bob Wilkin on Calvinism, predestination, and assurance. Bob, I have a lot of friends who are Calvinists. I went to a reform school. And while they're very strong in believing in the doctrine of predestination, they themselves aren't sure they're one of the elect. And so they don't have assurance of salvation. What do you think of the Calvinistic doctrine of assurance? 
Uh, that's a great question, Sean. Uh, R.T. Kendall, Dr. R.T. Kendall, uh, wrote his doctoral dissertation on Calvin and English Calvinism to 1647. And one of the things that startled him in his doctoral studies in, in Europe was that he said as he studied the Puritan divines, and the divines is the name they use for the leaders of the English branch of the Reformation, is that almost to a man, as they were on their deathbeds, they were lamenting the fact they were probably dying and going to hell. And he said the reason for this was because as they were dying, they were scanning their lives, taking personal inventory of their lives, and they were seeing all the flaws in it. They were seeing the fact that they didn't live a perfect life. Oh, yes, they may have given up a lot for Christ. They may have done a lot of good things, but they realized, you know, I fell short in a lot of areas. And so as a result, almost to a man, they were doubting their eternal destiny. And the truth is that is a common problem. I, let me give you an example. I had uh, lunch, I believe it was around the year 2000, I went to the Ligonier Conference, uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul and his group. And while I was there, I had breakfast with a leading uh, Calvinist theologian, Ph.D., pastoring a large church, teaching at a leading uh, Calvinist, five-point Calvinist seminary. And he was a very cordial man, so we got to talking, and I said, well, tell me, is it true, according to Reformed thought, that only those who are elect uh, are going to get into the kingdom. And he said, yes. And I said, and is it true that all of the elect will persevere to the end of their lives? He said, well, of course. And I said, well, doesn't it seem that the scriptures teach that it's impossible to know whether we'll persevere to the end of our lives or not? And he said, well, of course. He says, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and bring into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I might be disqualified. He said, if Paul wasn't sure he was going to persevere, we can't be sure either. And I said, well, then correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the Calvinist position then that we don't know where we're going until we die? And we can't know where we're going until we die? And I, I remember his response like it was yesterday. He said, well... I see in my life what I think are the works of the Spirit. But I must admit, it's possible I could fall away and fail to persevere. And if I do, I'll prove that what I thought were the works of the Spirit really weren't the works of the Spirit, and I'll go to hell. I mean, that's the sad position of Reformed Assurance. Because in Calvinism... Election is mysterious. God doesn't tell us who the elect are. And in Calvinism, faith is mysterious. It's almost like John 3.16 reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should not perish but have everlasting life. And since we don't know what is, then we need to look for signs of And what are the signs? My works. So Calvinists are looking for secondary signs of election and secondary signs of faith. But since none of those signs are definitive, they can't be sure. And their whole system is flawed. I, I debated Dr. James White about 10 years ago uh, on the issue of faith and assurance. And over the course of the debate, I kept hammering this point home. 
And uh, Dr. White wasn't able to say that he was certain of his eternal destiny because Calvinism doesn't allow that. I, I also debated uh, Dr. Ken Sarles in 1991 at Dallas Seminary in a brown bag. He came right out and said he was 99% sure of his salvation. He said, you can't be 100% sure, you know, because we're still in this life, etc. And I was thinking, well, you might be 99% sure when everything's great and rosy, but what happens when you have an argument with your spouse? You say something you shouldn't. You do something you shouldn't. Doesn't your assurance drop well south of 50%, 40%, 10%, whatever? And when that same person gets on their deathbed, don't they start taking inventory? And I, I think... You know, one of the dangers of this is people just stay so busy so they don't have to think about the fact they don't have assurance. To me, that would be a terrible way to live. And I don't mean that these people aren't well-intentioned. They are. But in my estimation, the reform position is flawed. And in fact, there was even an you know, argument within Calvinism. Um, there was the Merrill controversy, and it led to a whole discussion of this. Um, back in the early 1700s, they had the Merrill controversy, and it was all this discussion, you know, 300 years ago. Okay, so there you go. We um, <clears throat> we uh, we have uh, uh, all of us Calvinists. I, I have one right here on on. That's what this is here. You thought it was a Fitbit HR um, uh, charge, but it's actually a Calvinist assurance meter. And uh, it's, a, it's a special gadget that we all secretly have because Calvinists are so secretive. And um, uh, it, it keeps track of where your assurance is by how you've been fulfilling all the works righteousness requirements that you have to do um, to, to make sure because, you know, those Puritans were on their deathbeds. They were just, they were just... Okay, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard to... <clears throat> keep a straight face sometimes but um all right let's um let's think about what we uh what we just uh what we just heard here um i'm i'm gonna uh go back through it in a, a few moments but let's lay some basic foundational things here uh first of all a a calvinist assurance um the the issue goes back to something we have talked about many, many times before. And that is that Calvinism is theocentric. All synergistic systems, and certainly uh, the anti-lordship cheap grace position, is very, very um, man-centered. They're all man-centered. They're all anthropocentric. They're all centered upon what man does, God has made salvation a possibility. Uh, he has made it a potentiality. Uh, but every synergistic system, it ends up going down to what man does. God's made the provision, but it's all up to man. And you can have a long list or a really, really short list, but whatever the list is, that's what is going to determine whether God is going to be successful in this salvation thing or not. And this whole discussion is very much uh, illustrative of the fact that by talking about how you can have assurance, that's very, very important because, you know, this is just one of many videos that they've posted. 
Um, but we need to understand what is his assurance. What's it based on? And the the horrific thing here, because pastorally I've seen this. When this false teaching uh, inserts itself into a church, the result, of course, is having a church filled with driftwood, with unregenerate people who think they're saved. They walk down an aisle, they shook a hand, they were assured, look, 1 John 5.13, right here, sign your name. And, and I saw what that did. I saw what that did in a huge Southern Baptist church where you had, where the back door was bigger than the front door. And you were running people through, you were giving them assurance of salvation, you'd get them dunked, and then poof, that was it. You, you'd never see them again. Until you went out on visitation and tried to talk with these folks and, well, you know, they could just look at you and say, but but the deacon told me, you know, you know, ah, well, the deacon told me I'm saved. You get down from there, kid. The deacon told me I was saved. I, I you know, I still got the, I still got the Bible they gave me right, right there, you know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not interested in doing anything about it. I, I'm not interested in, in, uh you know, uh, being called to holiness and, uh, and you know, repentance. No, 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 not, I'm a good person. I saw, I saw the result too many times. Now they would say, well, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a misrepresentation of us. Well, you know, I, I'm sure that in your better moments, uh, that you're, you you really want to try to get people to, uh, uh, to live a, a good life. But the fact of the matter is, because you have boiled the gospel down past its minimum uh, to where it's a false gospel, to where it is, it is no longer the work of God whereby he changes the heart and makes that heart repentant. Since you've gotten rid of repentance and turned it into a human work that you may or may not want to do down the road someplace, uh, the result has little rep, little little connection to um, the gospel of Jesus Christ itself, and it ends up producing um, all sorts of of people. And, and uh, pastorally, I, I don't even have time to get into all of it. But how many times you you know just just in a let, let's leave the the false assurance thing aside. No, dealing with a mother whose son dies in a car accident. And you knew the kid. And there was not the single shred of evidence whatsoever that this this young person knew Christ. Had no interest in holiness, no interest whatsoever in, in following after Christ. Deny yourself? Take up the cross? When you make that only for super Christians, but you leave open the lesser Christian route, well, it produces all sorts of things. And so you get this this mother, and she wants, you know, you've been asked to do the uh, the funeral, and she wants you to just pass him on into into the very presence of God and talk about how what a wonderful Christian he was and everything else. And you happen to know that in reality. Um, this particular individual had absolutely not the first inkling of any spiritual thing at all. 
um, the, the results have been disastrous. Ask any pastor who has gone into a church that has been infected with this false teaching and tried to teach biblically about what it means to be a Christian and tried to call this congregation to holiness and to, oh, the, the results are a horrible, horrible thing to see. So where is the assurance in this system? Well, the assurance comes from never, ever, 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 ever asking whether you have a true saving faith or not, because there's no such thing as a non-saving faith. There's no such thing as a hypocrite. Uh, as long as you've said the words, boom, you're in, ticket punched. You, If you if you question that, you're questioning God's own word. You're questioning the validity of the gospel, etc., etc. So you can't even talk about true faith versus false faith. Um, all faith is saving faith. If it's faith, it saves. That's that. There's no question about it. And so all the parables, you know, the parables, the parables, soils. Ah, let's not worry about that. And James two. Let's not worry about that. And. You know, Paul's talk about examining yourself, and oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't deal with any of that stuff. That's just for super Christians. That's just for, those are discipleship issues. We just, we just lay all that stuff aside. So, the, the assurance is not something that you experience. It is actually just simply accepting this theological statement that you've gotten your ticket punched and that's it. And it really, it, it results in such a surface level theology to where you really, you, you can't enter into any of the important texts of scripture where you have to see how all the threads of soteriology are related to one another and how they come together in this beautiful, you can't go there. You, you can't talk about the warning passages in Hebrews. You can't talk about Paul's discussions of, of anything because you can't see how all of this comes together because you have such a surface level, this, this deep kind of soteriology that, hey, you tipped your hat toward God. You got that right. Now there's your, there's your assurance. Don't, you, the assurance is don't ask any questions. Now, if you want to call that assurance, okay. You want to know what real assurance looks like? I had just become an elder at our church. And one of the former elders who had had to step down due to um, you know, just extreme ill health, I and my fellow elder went and visited him the day he died. The day he died, he knew that death was right there. He his his heart had always been so weak, and and my fellow elder sat next to his bed and asked him, "Who is your only hope in life and in death? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation?" And to hear that feeble saint say. Oh, yes. He is my only hope. He wasn't looking to himself. He wasn't sitting there with a 
checklist. Well, my assurance level. Let me check my assurance level here. I have to recognize there are apostates. You 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 say, but you're a Calvinist. You don't believe in apostates. No, I don't believe that Christ loses any of his sheep. But there is plenty of false profession. Plenty of false profession. I take serious. I really actually believe the parable of the soils. And there are those, you spread the seed, and what happens? There's this instant growth, and then the sun comes up. There's no root. There's no depth. There's never any fruit. Not true life. Jesus said that if you are in him, you will bear fruit. That's the point of John 15. The false assurance is the saddest part of the ministry. You you have to applaud anybody that says, okay, we are justified by faith alone. I agree with that. You would agree with that. It's the righteousness of Christ and his alone that is the ground of our justification. They don't talk in those kinds of theological terms, but in reality they'd have to say that in order to maintain their position of salvation by faith alone. Where they go astray is that they don't understand faith. And because they don't understand faith, they really don't understand the grace of God. And this is what we're going to get into when we talk about uh, their theology and what they're promoting. Just for the sake of the viewers here, let me ask you this about this GES, the Grace Evangelical Society. Mm -hmm. Can you name a couple of names? Who... Who are the main guns that run this thing, and what is their theological qualifications for putting out all this heresy? Well, I think think that uh, a couple of them might be, uh, they certainly have Bible college graduates. Maybe a couple of them are are seminary graduates. I can't do a a biography on all of their writers, but... uh, Sean Lazar, who is the director of publications for the Grace Evangelical Society, wrote Is that this, their magazine? This is their magazine, uh, Grace in Focus. And this issue happens to deal with faith and works in their issue. You can see it. And uh, this fellow right here, Sean Lazar, is the one who did the YouTube video against us. Oh, okay. And um, uh, we'll get into their basic beliefs, but I don't, I don't know... Sean Lazar. What about I do, Zane Hodges? I do know Zane Hodges. I had Zane Hodges at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's one of my professors. Really? Yes. And uh, Zane has come up with novel interpretations, especially of the book of James. As a matter of fact, I think I might have He was Zane a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and they allowed him to teach there. And create more heretics. Well, they allowed him to teach there. I say his views are novel, but when taken to their logical end, they dip into the heretical point of view. I think that he's wrong. And gosh, it's so difficult to run around and call everybody heretics. I don't like that word. I like to say, look, you guys say a lot of good things. You say some things that we would totally agree with. But at the end of the day... You undo it with the things you say that are wrong. They're simply not right. And they're accusing us of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you listen to Lazar talk about us and my video against their work, mm-hmm. he would say, 
Well, he says a couple of good things here, and he goes like this, and it's kind of condescending, and well, that's all right, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, but at the end of the day, he's saying we don't understand salvation, we don't understand grace, we really don't understand faith, and we certainly don't understand the book of James. And that's on the strength of this commentary, which they promote and push. Yeah, I see this, the name on there. It says Zane Hodges. Right. This is Zane Hodges' commentary on the book of James. And this is one of their primary sources, and this is the man that they quote mm -hmm. constantly because they have come under the teaching of Zane both on the book of Hebrews and in the book of James. Mm -hmm. And James is outside of mainstream Christianity in his views, especially on James and uh, Hebrews as well. So uh, I've read it, I've read the commentary, and we're going to get into why we think he's wrong as we move forward yes, in yes. discussing this, okay? All right. So that's why we're doing this, uh, Larry, and uh, I, I would hope that those out there who have their Bibles open and are watching this video would join us in the study. I have Grace in Focus, I have Lazar's articles, I have Bob Wilkins, another one of their writers' articles, I have several articles from some of their other writers with me, we'll try to do some quotations uh, from their work as well. I brought them along. We have uh, Keith Pessy, maybe, Bob Wilkin, uh, Ken Yates. Uh, these are writers that have written in their magazine, uh, especially on the topic we want to discuss now. So, having said that, you have to understand, all those of you who are out there, we're reading this stuff. We're analyzing this stuff. We're, we're running it through the threshing machine of uh, biblical uh, interpretation, analysis of the text, the way you use your, uh, your text and uh, the language and Hermeneutics. so forth. We're not running around uh, calling people heretics for no reason at all. We think you're wrong and we set out to state it clearly and precisely. Well, you know, that's, that's one thing it. about it. At least these guys believe their position and are calling us heretics. Right. Because... That proves that what we're saying about them is diametrically opposed to what they're saying, and they, and right. vice versa. So it ends up, someone's right, someone's wrong, or we're all wrong. One of the someone's <laughs> right and someone's wrong, yes. and this is the problem, uh, and we're just going to have to lay it on the line here yep. and uh, let people decide for themselves. So, shall we get started? Go ahead. All right. The floor is yours, bro. I want to start in, a, in a, a peculiar place, Larry, with this entire movement and you might think it's peculiar those who are watching the video might think it's peculiar but I've read their stuff over and over and over again and I want to begin with what I think is their axiomatic presuppositional base for their entire ministry basically the entire ministry is centered upon the book of James because it is the book of James in James chapter 2, verses 14 all the way through mm -hmm. 24, that discusses this issue of faith and works and justification, okay? Critical portion of Scripture. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin with uh, James because they've written so much on James and they're quoting James constantly in their articles and they know how important it is to them to get it right in their mind and tell us that we've got it wrong, mm -hmm. all right? Because that's what's going on. 
So just let me say at the beginning that Grace Evangelical Society teaches that the book of James is written to a reading audience that is absolutely, without question, eternally saved and eternally secure in their salvation. James is said to view his audience as eternally secure. Hence, all of James' warnings are given only for temporal deliverance or what they call temporal salvation. Mm -hmm. It's only the here and now. There's nothing in James that's on the table for eternal life. Mm -hmm. Having said this, the Grace Evangelical Society cannot take any of the warning passages in the book of James and apply them to eternal security or eternal life. Mm -hmm. They can only take these warning passages and apply them to what they call temporal salvation, such things as living a good life, avoiding the consequences of sinning, being able to help your neighbor when your neighbor is in need, um, uh, serving the Lord with, uh, with a right attitude and a, and a good disposition. And, the, and the, the top thing, of course, is James is warning you, if you don't do these things, the Lord will kill you. He'll take you out sooner than you think. They always hold that out as a possibility. So all of the warnings given in the book of James are designed only to protect people against a tawdry, undisciplined, unfaithful life that is wrought with difficulty and the consequences of those sins could result in an early death. Mm -hmm. That's their presupposition going in. Mm -hmm. Remember, everybody James is writing to, he's convinced, are eternally saved because Mm -hmm. they believe at one point Mm -hmm. in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed, and GES says... If you're sincere, when you hear the gospel and believe it, God is obligated to save you, and he will save you. You are eternally secure. Set that aside. You can't lose that. You can't change. You could stop believing it, and you're still going to heaven Mm -hmm. because God can't break his promise to you. Mm -hmm. So you are eternally secure right there. It's done. It's over. That question is finished. Your ticket is punched. You're on your way to heaven. That's right. The rest of Scripture can only warn you of being a willing participant in a life that will end up badly for you, a life that will help no one else, a faith that is absolutely useless, and you'll be on the wrong side of God's uh, disposition. He will not take any pleasure in you. Your life will be fraught with difficulty. You'll have problems and probably poor health, can't help anybody, so forth and so on. And that's what James is warning against. That and that alone. Because once you have believed with a sincere heart, God is obligated to save you. He will save you. That's settled. And it's by faith alone. Okay? That's the presupposition. We, on the other hand, believe just the opposite. I can't express this more clearly. We believe just the opposite. We believe a much more reasonable assumption is that James and all other writers of the New Testament, I'll throw the Apostle Paul in here as well, are writing to confessing Christians 
giving them the benefit of the doubt because they have at some point or another expressed faith that they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say this on the strength of the fact that in these passages, even with the Apostle Paul, the warnings are so severe for what we call a false profession of faith, an intellectual only profession of faith, a profession of faith done in dire circumstances where you're reaching out for something in your life that you need, psychological persuasion and all this sort of stuff that could bring forth from within you this idea that, hey, hanging on to Jesus might not be a bad idea. I think I'll just, I think I'll believe that gospel. I do believe that gospel. Count me in and, and, and you, if you do that, God's obligated to save you. But we, it's hard to, it's hard to get around this because you would agree that all Christians believe that we are saved, justified, redeemed by faith alone. And where, where GES doesn't want to go, they don't want to believe that there's such a thing as a false profession of faith. They just don't believe it. They don't believe it. They don't believe it can happen. And the reason they can't believe it can happen is because they believe God's obligated to save you if you believe. The obligation is so, with God. So Simon Magus, in the book of Acts, just doesn't matter. He just doesn't count. Well, they would say he never believed. Oh, is that what it was? Even yeah. though it says he believed. Well, they would say that. Uh, <laughs> does it say he would believe? Now they're going to they're going to check you up on. I want you to look yeah. the passage up. I don't yeah, know if it says say, he believed. I think or it's not. in Acts, Acts chapter eight. Does it say he believed? Let's or does see. it say that he wanted this power? Let's see. Well, he wants that power too. What did it say? He, he was believed? willing to give him money for that power. For the power. Let's but did see. he say he believed? That's Let's well. See. Make sure about this. Okay. I want to give these guys I, no no fodder for their cannons. Okay, let's see. Do not slip up on this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about it. Let's see. Uh, let's find we're out. In, uh, we're in Acts chapter 8. Uh-huh. And, uh, but there was, and starting in verse 9, it says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, yeah. giving out that himself was some great one. Verse 10, To whom they... All gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Now, verse 11. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed, this is verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then... Simon himself believed Believe. also. And after being baptized. So see, Correct. that's why I bring it up. Right. I wasn't too worried about not finding that verse. Good point. Good point. <laughs> there we're going to document every single verse. Okay. Because we have to. We have to. I've only so, been reading that since I got saved in 81. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so having believed, according to their theology, he's saved forever. He is saved forever. And he was baptized. And he was baptized. So he's saved so forever. So that's a double one, right? So, so he's saved. <laughs> does the Bible give any indication that he may not be saved? I think it does. <laughs> yes, it does. All I think, do I think read the so. chapter. I think, Simon, I think, I think Peter has some words for him. 
Yes. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this oh, wickedness. Oh, wait a minute. You said repent. I know. We'll get into that. <laughs> repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He, his the intention of his heart is wrong. Yeah, he says I'm in verse sure. 23, he says, verse 23, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness right. and in the bond uh, of iniquity. Does that sound like a believer? In no. the bondage of iniquity? I, I'm going to go on record here as saying, if they're consistent with their theology, their rejoinder to you would be, he's saved, but he's in the bond of iniquity. He's saved, but his heart is not right. He's eternally secure because he was he believed and was baptized, but he's going to have a filthy life and he's going to die young. And he didn't that's repent. All that, that's all, and he, well, he doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to. If he doesn't repent, it, it doesn't matter. If the guy who doesn't repent lives a bad life, he's going to live yeah. a bad life. I yeah. think if they're consistent, but that's how they're going to argue. Right, right, and I yeah. agree with you. But yeah. I'm just saying, if repentance is important, or let's take the other way. Let's say. What they say, repentance is not important. Right. It's only it important like, to lead a good life. Right, right. It's not important for eternal life. That's right, their right, position. Right, 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 right. But if it's a lesser importance, based right. on what they're saying, why why would Peter bring up the word here? Uh, you know, he wants them to repent so they don't live a crummy life. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Right. You better repent or your life's going to really stink. So you're going to have trouble here. Yes. So right. they're they're basically denying all. You know, I grew up with a strong concordance. Now I've got a concordance on my. All right. Hold, my on, hold the thought. On I know, but I'm just okay. saying. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that. Uh, you know, I've got all these Greek lexicons yeah. and uh, Old Testament uh, uh, driver and Briggs and you know, mm -hmm. the Hebrew and I, I've got a, a, a pretty yeah. nice library. Yeah. That I. Reference to for all these years. Now you can just go to computers and right. get all that stuff. Exactly. But I've never seen that interpretation from all the Greek and Hebrew from the, what these words mean. In uh, you know, in all that study I it's did over all so those decades. It's not so much what the words mean; it's what they produce. Therefore, repentance, but it only pertains to temporal salvation, not to eternal life. This is what this whole ministry is right, all right, about, right, remember? Right. So you'd have to put Simon Magus, right? Yeah. He's saved. He See, was baptized, but he's going to live a bad life. And Peter's trying to tell him, you better repent. You're yeah, in the gall I, of bitterness. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's just that it's interesting to me. You know, I got saved in, in, on, on May 16th, 1981. And then I'm studying like mad and... Getting into all this theology, biblical stuff. He went to right. seminary a little bit, and, and uh, all these years, right? You know what? What is it? This year, I guess that's thirty-eight years ago. Yeah, thirty-eight years. Yeah. And as you're explaining all this, and you did this before in the yeah. other video, yeah. but you know, until we did this GES thing number yeah. one, yeah, I I just hadn't heard of any of this garbage. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, it, it didn't appear to me in Larry, any of the Larry, studies. Larry, I did a lot of Larry, studies. Larry, Larry, we're going to have to be kind. Oh, we've got to be kind. Okay. All right. We, we really do. I mean, I'm not, I don't even want to be condescending. I, can I, we just need to lay it out for people to okay, see. Okay, go ahead. I'm laying it out for what they're saying. 
GES assumes all who read James' epistle are secure and hence have a faith that secures eternal life. Mm -hmm. Hence, every admonition, every warning from James applies only to temporal salvation, that is, deliverance from bad things while alive on earth. That's their position. We'll get into why I think it's wrong. i got to lay it out first, okay? For GES, there is one faith it saves eternally. If it does not have works, it yet remains an eternal saving faith. Works are optional. They are not necessary. They advocate that James is not contemplating two kinds of faith in his writings, one that saves and one that is not based upon a measurement of good works. Rather, they insist there's only one faith. It saves and is is accompanied by good works only with some Christians who make the effort to have these works. But by no means are they necessary in every Christian. Some have good works, they live well. Others do not have good works, and they cannot be saved from the consequences that may result from not having good works. GES does not think in terms of two kinds of faith. They think in terms of two kinds of Christians. Mm -hmm. Okay? Where you and I would think in terms of two kinds of faith, we would say, well, that guy says he's a Christian. He says he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he lives like the world. He's a friend of the world. He he doesn't go to church. He's no Bible study. He doesn't produce any fruit, nothing like that. And in fact, he just doesn't even believe the gospel anymore. They would say he's still saved because God's not an Indian giver. And when he believed, God gave him salvation. You know, that reminds me of Roman Catholicism for some reason because a guy can be a Roman Catholic priest, mm -hmm. but then let's say he actually gets born again and gets saved, becomes a born-again Christian and yeah. leaves Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church says, well, he's still a priest. Right. Yeah, he's still a priest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So GES, and this is important for all of us to understand their theology, GES doesn't believe that there's such a thing as two kinds of faith, one that has works and the other one that doesn't. They only believe in one faith, and if you have that faith and you're sincere, you're saved, works are optional. In fact, you can even deny the gospel and be saved because affirming the gospel after you're saved could be considered a work. And they're not going to let works touch faith, ever. They have no connection. Yeah, that's key to understanding. What about that scripture? I don't quite remember. I'd have to look it up on my, my cell phone uh, that says, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now you notice the impact of this verse. This clearly shows that the GES, the Grace Evangelical Society, is in serious, serious error because we're talking about apostates here. We're talking about what Hebrews talks about. Apostates who go away from the faith. They give up on the faith and they're cursing Christ. The, the scripture says you can't do that if you're truly born from above, truly born of the Holy Spirit. 
So the GS is preaching another gospel. But moving forward with, with this, this means that because GES doesn't believe in two kinds of faiths, they have to believe in two kinds of Christians, and they do. GES believes that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. He is saved fully. The carnal Christian lives a life almost void of any good works or fruit. His faith is useless because he does not use it to do good works. His faith cannot save him from a selfish life, consequences of living in sin, setting a poor example, helping others in need, giving to the body of Christ, and living in general for the Lord. His faith cannot save him from the consequences of that kind of life. He is a carnal Christian. He can be a carnal Christian his whole life, but he's still saved eternally because that's been settled by the day that he sincerely said, I believe. Okay? Uh, the first soil is not saved. It never believes the seed. It's really the wayside, and the, and the, and the, the bird kind of comes and snatches the seed away, lest it, they believe and be saved. But the other three soils are, are saved. Uh, they each, the seed germinates, and life springs up. And um, one, the life springs up, but then it withers away. The other one, the life springs up, but doesn't bear mature fruit. And then the third, the fourth soil springs up and bears mature fruit. But there's life in those three soils. In contrast to the first one where the seed gets snatched away, uh, lest, you know, there be any life. Biblical proof for the final, for the uh, carnal Christian is found in the parable of the soils. Now this fits in with their theology. You know what's coming. Yes. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verse 11 through 16, we read these words from our Lord. Luke 8, 11 through 16. And this is GES theology. Jesus says to his followers, this is the meaning of the parable of the soils. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. GES says they are not saved. They can't be because Satan took the seed, and the text clearly says so that they may not believe and be saved. So GES says the first soil unsaved, but now look what happens. Jesus goes on to say, Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, but in time of testing they fall away. GES says they're saved eternally. They fall away into a tawdry life, bad lifestyle. It's going to turn out bad for them. They might die early, but they're saved. They're saved on the basis those who receive the word with joy. They are saved. The fact that they fall away later is irrelevant to their eternal salvation. Now, let's move on. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature at all. These who received the word Amongst the thorns, 
and they go away choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures and do not mature. They're saved. They're still saved. They are eternally secure. The fact that they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures just proves the point for GES. They're living a crummy life, but they are still eternally saved. You can't touch them. And of course, but on the seed, the seed on the good soil, those few Christians who use their faith stands for those who have a noble and good heart. They hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, they produce a crop. They're saved, but they are the second kind of Christian. They are the spiritual Christians. GES believes in two kinds of Christians, the carnal and the spiritual. You can be carnal your whole life long, you're still saved. If you're spiritual your whole life long, you are saved, you produce fruit, the Lord loves you, he takes care of you, you live a longer life, you're saved from the consequences of sin because you don't sin, and ultimately spiritual Christians gather lots of rewards when they die and go to heaven. The spiritual Christian is the one who decides to use his or her faith to produce fruit and good works. And thus the final soil is the spiritual Christian. Remember, we believe in two kinds of faith. They believe in two kinds of Christians. Well, I've heard that carnal Christian thing. Yes. I remember Albert Martin back years ago was already yeah. going after that. Yeah. So is this yeah. just a continuation of that carnal Christian doctrine? It is a continuation of carnal Christian doctrine to the nth degree. Yeah, to they're the going way degree. beyond what we used to hear yeah. 30, 40 years ago. Right. This is carnal Christian to the idea that you can be saved and deny the Lord Jesus Christ, live a life of utter blasphemous sin, hate, anti-Christian, uh, and, and the Lord will do one or two things to you. He'll make your life crummy, and you'll regret everything for the rest of your life, or he'll kill you early. It has what, nothing to do with eternal what salvation. They, what do they do with Matthew 7, where Jesus says, I never knew you? We'll get into that. Okay. There are a lot of verses we can okay. get oh, yeah, into yeah. with that. Okay. Uh, of course. I mean, just but, everything's just popping to my head yeah. just so fast when you but, went. But now the main thing, the main thing, is that Grace Evangelical Society has got to do something with James 2, 14 through 19. They know it. Um, yeah. Okay, wait a second. Ah. Okay. Um, I don't... So, so he wants to take the historic interpretation, um, which is nonsense. There is no historic interpretation of James... Uh, I mean, if you could just read through read read through the history of interpretation of James and or, or there's going to be differences among Orthodox and Catholic and Lutheran and Reformed and, and Anabaptist and, and there's just no historical interpretation of James. So he's trying to he's trying to say, you know, I have history on my side, and there is no there is no stable history of interpretation of James. But okay, so that's that's a mischaracterization that he's using kind of as a rhetorical tool to kind of back his position up. And I'm going to read James 2:14 through 19. Here's James 2:14 through 19 writing. Oh, by the way, remember, James is said to be writing to those who can't lose their salvation and all of them are saved. Period. Everybody who reads it is saved. Period. He's writing <laughs> to my brethren. He's writing to a dear brethren, brethren this, brethren that. So obviously, they're all saved. Well, we would say now, 
They're hopefully converted. They're hopefully saved. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. And what else is he supposed to refer to them? My, my lost people, those of you who have never um, exhibited any kind of faith or trust in Jesus, I, he has to call them brethren on the basis of their open testimony that at one time or another they had faith or expressed faith in Jesus. Is it real? Of course it is, GES would say. They're all saved. They're all eternally secure. We would say, what if it's a false profession? They would say, there's no such thing as a false profession. Period. Now, when you were saying all that, you just reminded me of Matthew 28. And I looked it up just now as you were still talking along those lines. And uh, in Matthew 28, 17, it says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Right. So you've got believers there. Right. And some doubted. And, and then he goes on saying, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So you've got people that can doubt, even in that group. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. So that means that the way I interpret that, you could have some people that aren't, it's just like those crowds that used to follow Jesus right. around. There was always people that weren't believing, and there's some that were believing. Right. you got a mixed crowd, and it goes back to what you're saying. Right, well, of course it does. And there are always going to be those who believe and those who don't believe, but the question is, those who say they are Christians and say they believe, is it real? And their answer is yes. Every See, and I'm just saying, time. like, even here, here's yeah. Jesus, yeah. and there's still some in that crowd. That are doubting. Yeah, they would say doubting is okay. They're still eternally well, secure. They'll, they'll use anything they can to try to weasel. And, I mean, I try to be nice here. Yeah, right? well, with it, and, and of course, <laughs> uh, they believe in carnal Christianity out of uh, the old campus crusade, carnal Christianity of Bill Bright. And they, they cite 1 Corinthians 3.15. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise builder, I laid a foundation, another is building upon it, but let each, let each man be careful how he builds upon it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built up remains, he shall have a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. So they're saying, look, you could have, you could absolutely have terrible works, but you're still saved. The works are burned up, not the man. And we expect everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ to be eternally secure their works are irrelevant. They could be good. They could be bad. They're going to be burned up if they're bad. They're going to get rewards if they're good. They have nothing to do with eternal life. Nothing. That's their position. Now, this in this context, <laughs> the Apostle Paul is not talking about works done in faith, fruit of the Spirit. He's not talking about uh, 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 saved unto good works. He's not talking about Ephesians 2.10 good works that we are to walk in them. He's talking about people who come along and build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ right. the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I would say Grace Evangelical Society qualifies as those That's right. in this. They're building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ the wrong way. 
And if there are believers in the Grace Evangelical Society, they all these works that they're doing, all this magazine stuff, all their art is burned completely. They're burned. They are not building properly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I would That's say right. the warning is for them. That's right. It, it is not for the That's common guy right. who doesn't have any works. That's ridiculous. Well, it's just listening to you as you go through this, and mm -hmm. for the sake of time, I'm trying right. to hold myself back. Yes, I know, I know. And uh, just so many verses I could have brought up, but to, to, for the right. sake of your presentation, right. I'm sitting back here going, we've, we've keep got, my mouth shut. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, hold, go ahead. Hold thy tongue. <laughs> All right, now we're at James 2.14, and here's the problem. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. What does Grace Evangelical do with that passage which appears to be teaching that the kind of faith that doesn't help out his brother and has no worth can't save him. Mm -hmm. All right, now here's what they do. All right, here's what they do. Grace Evangelical comes to this verse and they say, What use is it, my brother, if a man says he has faith, but he has no worth? Can faith save him? Oh, wait a minute. My text says, Can that faith save him? They translate the King James translation and the New King James translation, which leaves out the article. So yeah. they translate, can faith save him? Yeah. And they chide you for translating it, can that faith save you? So, Even though the New American Standard, the revised, authorized revised version, the New International Version, about the, the New English the New English Bible, the what? ESV. The ESV all translate that article with, can that kind of faith save you? Can such a faith save you? Can a faith? So in this video, the GES guy says, Mr. Zins doesn't know up from down on the whole passage of James chapter 2, and he doesn't even understand the book of James. There simply is no... There, there's, he, there's, there is an article there, all right, but we don't need to translate that article whatsoever. All right, that's an interesting question, So, and I can't answer that. So can the article, which just says the, can that actually be translated in a demonstrative sense? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. Um, I'm looking at the New Revised Standard Version here in the interlinear. The interlinear just kind of translates it as the... And the uh, new Revised Standard Version, which is, you know, this is kind of the scholarly kind of translation that people use, just says, can faith save you? So they leave out the article entirely. They leave out this whole kind. Can that kind of faith or that faith? Um, interesting. So I can't answer that question. I'll have to look it up. And if we do translate that article, here's the way we're going to translate it. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no worth, can the faith save him? And I'm listening to this guy. 
How does that help you? Translating it, can the faith save them when it's referring to the faith that has no works? Yes. Can So, for some reason, he thinks he has safety in translating the article, can the faith save them? So later on in the video, he realizes, wait a minute, if I say, can the faith save them, and it refers to the faith that has no works, that doesn't help me much. I might as well be saying, can that faith save them, or can such a faith like that save them? And now I've fallen into the trap of all the translations that I just condemned. That's right. So he pulls down the uh, uh, King James, and he reads it, and he says, oh, that's interesting. They don't even translate the article. How about that? And I'm you mean sitting he there didn't thinking, edit that out of his video. He didn't he edit that out of the video. It it's right there. He in must it. not have a good video guy. And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you're you're telling me first that the article is there and it needs to be translated with the word the, and you are excoriating all of these modern translations that translate it as an article, only a demonstrative article, and he's never heard of the demonstrative use of the article. And then he pulls out his own Bible and says, how about that? They don't even... So, I said, all right. I think he was a King James only out there. For well, let's, let's just say the article is not there, okay? And it is there, by the way. Mm -hmm. And it can be translated as a demonstrative, and all the modern translations yeah. have it yeah, right, yeah, okay? Yeah, yeah. Can that faith save him? He should know that that's not the issue of the passage. The article or no article, the issue of the passage is the word save. Mm -hmm. GES doesn't believe that the word sozo there refers to eternal salvation. They translate the word sozo as save, but Zane Hodges in this commentary right here goes on and on about the fact that the word sozo in James 2.14 does not refer to eternal salvation. It refers to temporal salvation being saved from a sloppy life, being saved. Is, from, they, is he getting that from the original languages? From the, 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 what the interpretation would be from a... He's getting it from his understanding that the word sozo in James never means eternal salvation. Mm -hmm. And he can show places in the rest of Scripture where the so, word sozo doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Mm -hmm. And that's true. The word sozo can mean deliverance. It can mean saved from calamity. It can mean a lot of different things where the idea of escaped or saved from or, or kept safe from. The word sozo doesn't always mean eternal salvation. Mm -hmm. Saved. Yeah. Saved. S-O-S. -S, save our souls. Mm -hmm. That's what S-O-S means when those ships are going down. It doesn't refer to save us eternally. <laughs> so we use the word in English to mean a lot of things. Save me from this food. Save me from having to listen to this boring lecture. Save me from this YouTube presentation. Right. So, and he's right. It can, But in James, he's arguing it can't mean saved. So let's read on in James. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and if one of you says, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, and what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Now, GES has a problem. What does this word dead mean? GES has an answer. The word dead doesn't mean dead. It means useless. 
And that's the way they translate it. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is useless being by itself. So, in essence, when James asks the question, can that kind of faith save you, he's referring to save you from a bad life, mm -hmm. and even so, faith, if it has no works, is useless. It's no good being by itself. Mm -hmm. Well, the verse goes on to say, but someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And they would say, yes, works are good to show faith, but they aren't necessary to show faith. Mm -hmm. You show your works by you show your faith by your works, but works aren't necessary. And then James closes the, uh, the question by saying, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So now we've got the term useless, dead, and save. And GES translates all of them in reference to only a temporal salvation. Okay. That's their theology. That's what they're doing. And in doing so, they maintain that every time the word saved in James is used, it only refers to temporal salvation. So let's just take a look at the other places where sojo is used in James. James 1, 21 through 23. Let's read it together. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So G.E.S. comes along and says, how interesting that he uses the word sozo, save there. Well, it certainly doesn't refer to anything eternal, to save your souls eternally. That's been settled already. He's writing to believers. They are saved. So he's not telling them, receive the word to save them because they're already saved. Remember the presupposition going in? Well, they're all it's, saved. it's a beautiful example of uh, Isis Jesus. <laughs> I think so. So, they would say, receiving the word implanted which is able to save your souls means save your souls from temporal problems, a temporal salvation, things here on earth a tawdry life, over and over again. They say it again and again and again. Even though James says, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So, I guess, if you don't have any works and you're, you're, you're only supposed to be saved from a tawdry life, it doesn't make any sense for James to say, prove yourselves doers of the word. What's the point? You could, be, you could be merely a hearer who deludes himself mm -hmm. without the worry mm -hmm. of eternal salvation. That's mm -hmm. exactly what they're saying. Mm -hmm. We move forward. James 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one law giver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So how does the GES translate the word sozo here, the one who is able to save and to destroy? Hmm. They translate it as saved from a temporal 
bad life, saved from consequences of sin. But they don't like the word destroy. The one who is able to save, not to destroy, but one who will let you go in your debauchery, one who will let you go in your sinfulness, one who will uh, allow you to feel the pains of your sin. They won't translate that word destroy as literally destroy eternally. Right, right. In, in well, they're forced to, based yeah. on their theology. Yeah, they can't do it. They're they presuppositions. And finally, James five nineteen and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Now they got a problem with death there. Death could be a figure of speech for a bad life or it could simply mean that if you turn a brother from the error of his way, you will save his soul from an early demise, physical death. Most of them take that as physical death. Uh, of course they have to. Because salvation is eternally secure. Well, so I'm not going to try let, to interrupt me, too let, much, but let me just say this: you know, having dealt with all kinds of cults yeah. you know, throughout my 38 years being a Christian apologist, yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, the way they redefine, use eisegesis, redefine everything to fit their theology, it makes me think of classic uh, Jehovah's Witness theology or Mormonism. The way they reinterpret. And force their interpretations into the Bible. Precisely, Larry. And we're, I'm going to let you wax eloquently in just a second because we're going to pull up some quotes from them, okay. okay? But I want to summarize GES. This is the problem we have with GES. It is a waste of time to ask anybody at GES about the nature of faith. For them, there is no nature of faith. There is no kind of faith. There is no essence of faith. There is no no differentiation between a real faith and a false faith. There's only to them one kind of faith. It's simple, it's complete, and when exercised, God grants salvation. There are no components to faith. If you are sincere and believe the gospel, you are eternally secure whether you like it or not or whether you live it or not. That's their position, okay? So it's a waste of time to talk with them about two kinds of faith because they don't believe it. Hmm. Uh, there are no, secondly, there are no tests for a false faith. There are no tests for a false faith. Works is not a test to determine whether or not faith is real. If someone believes, then at that moment salvation is eternally secure. The assumption is always that the belief is always genuine. That's the first problem we have with it. Oh, yeah. okay. Second problem we have with GES is man is fully capable to believe upon promptings from the Holy Spirit. He is free to take it or leave it. GES believes that free will determines their eternal destiny and their free will obligates God. If they hear the gospel and they decide to do it and exercise their free will, God is obligated to save them. And they say God will save them because he's promised. He's not an Indian giver. And, of course, because of that, they can live in any way they want to afterwards because God won't break his promise. That's the second thing we have, that salvation is of man. It's not of God right. at all. Thirdly, 
Any attempt to examine if someone has true faith is futile. Faith is true if it believes that Jesus is the Savior. Works are unnecessary and cannot be used as any criteria for true faith. Fourth, there are not two kinds of faith. There are only two kinds of Christians. The Christian who lives for the Lord is a spiritual Christian. The Christian who lives for Satan and his demons is a carnal Christian. Okay, but they're both Christian because they both prayed the prayer. Said, ask God to save them. Here's another thing we have. All translations, including the NIV, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, and the NEB, are spurious translations if they translate the article in James 2 as a demonstrative article. They're all spurious, and they cannot be trusted. Is that a sign of a cult or what? Of course. All right. Six. Works are never connected to faith, with faith being the cause and works the effect. Works are never connected with faith, with faith being the cause and works being the effect. Because it is not connected necessarily. In other words, you can have all the faith you want and no works need be produced. There's no connection there. Seventh, all attempts to show that we are saved by grace through faith alone and that real faith produces works and fruit are relegated to a works salvation. Anytime you bring up works to somebody from GES, um, their response is, you are a works salvationist guy. And you say, no, I don't say works is a condition for salvation. I say works is the result of true faith. True faith is pregnant with works. There's a difference between making works a condition for salvation, and they say, no, no, you're making works a condition for salvation. You keep making works a condition for salvation. I said, you're not listening to me. I believe that we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. I believe the faith bears fruit and bears works. It's pregnant with good works and fruit. That's saving faith. But there is another faith that's a renegade faith. It's a faith of demons. It doesn't produce fruit. And you'll know it by what it's producing. And they say, see, there you go again. You're making works a condition. So we are at such odds that they can't even understand what we're saying. Right, right, right. And their retort is always, see, you're making it a condition. It's a see, mindset. you are backloading works <laughs> into faith and you're making faith plus works. Now, i got a quick question for you so yeah. as you continue your pr presentation. Uh, the, uh, they're making these accusations, you're a works salvationist, right. salvationist guy, yeah. and they're accusing us, as they have already, you denigrate with names, calling, right. heretic, all that stuff. Right. But let's say you're on this side of the boat, which you are. Mm -hmm. They're on that side. But based on their theology... But they still have to say, even though you're a heretic and all this, and you're wrong, and you're work salvationist, but you had a profession of faith. Right. So you're still a Christian. Exactly. No matter what they call you. Exactly. Kind of. I can be heretical Christian. Kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> not, in, not in their theology. Not in their, not in their theology. Why do they waste the time calling us heretics if we're already Christians? Because you're a Christian heretic. And they don't want they, they they don't want us to have a, a tawdry 
Probably right. life. Right. Okay. They don't, they, they, if, if we continue in this vein, <laughs> well, it's too late. Most of my life is over, and it's been really good life. <laughs> I'm not going to have a tawdry life, so I don't know what I'm going <laughs> to be punished for for believing this stuff. That's true. That's a that's a good apologetic, actually. Yeah. I mean, I've known you for almost 30 years. Yeah. And you had a good life. Yeah, had a good life. Uh, Still having a good life. And you've been I'm a blessed. heretic, according to yeah. them, the whole time. I should, I, should be a, <laughs> I should be a drunk or something. I don't know. But the way it's... All right, for those of you who are... And I'm going to turn this over to Larry in a minute here. We believe this. When James says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? James is asking the right question. Can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister, and he means save him eternally, he means save him unto heaven. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's dead. Does God actually save people, give them the Holy Spirit, give them the mind of Christ, and create in them a new heart? And, and Paul says all things become new. Does he also include in that package a dead faith? This is preposterous. But that's exactly what Grace Evangelical Society is saying, because they have fragmented their position of theological constructs to where they take one piece at a time, pick it up, polish it off, spiff it out, set it down, and say, see there, that's what that means, see there, that's what that means, see there, that's what that means. But when you put the whole thing together, it's a house of cards. It's, it's, a, it's a bunch of pieces put together that end up being nonsense. Unfortunately, it undermines the true gospel and gives a false security to those who are not Christians, to those who have walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, been in a foxhole, heard an evangelist on TV, had a bad night, felt guilty for what they were doing, cried out to the Lord, said, I believe, and they don't. It's a false profession. The world's full of it. So, that James asks the right question. You have faith, I have works, Go ahead. Show me your faith without the works. Can you do it? Can you do that, Grace Evangelical Society? Can you show us your faith without the works? Or we just take your word for it, that you have faith, and your faith is a good faith. I know you want us to believe that, because you believe that that's all that's necessary to be saved. You say, I believe, and you're saved. But James says, how are you going to show that to me? How are you going to show that? You might say, James, none of your business. You might say, James, I don't have to show you anything. I don't have to show you one good work. It's a dumb question. I'm not going to answer it. I'm saved. You're adding works. You're backloading works, James. But James will have none of it. James says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. All right? And that's what Christians ought to consider. Can I show anybody that I have true faith? We believe you can. We believe it comes out because God is at work in you both the willing to work for his good pleasure, and he's not going to let you end up this way. James does believe that there is a false faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. There are demons who believe in God. They have to. He's there. They can't deny him. 
But they shudder. Why? Because they don't have faith that produces any good work for God. Unless you're willing to say demons are saved because they believe in God and they don't need any works. I doubt that's what James is teaching. He closes this in verse 20 by asking uh, the question, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You say it's useless for a good life. We say it's useless for everything. Salvation included. It's useless for salvation. That's what James is teaching. And oh, by the way, the article is there. It's a demonstrative article. It needs to be translated. And James 1.21, Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Yes, we believe that those who are in the reading audience better take heed if they are not receiving this word implanted that can save their souls. And the rest of James warns them about the way they use their tongue, the way they treat other brothers and sisters in Christ, the way they give uh, too much prominence to rich people. On and on it goes, the way they are hearers, of the, uh, uh, hearers only who delude themselves. Yes, these warnings are real because James is writing to a group of people and he can't tell them with the absolute certainty of God that they are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He assumes they are unless, and Apostle Paul does the same thing, he assumes they are unless, unless, and he goes on and stipulates what the unless means. So the bottom line for GES, I think, is they begin with the wrong premise by assuming that everybody that James is writing to is saved automatically, eternally secure, and that relegates every warning to nothing but a warning against a bad life. And yes, when they get to 2.14, it becomes enormously preposterous yes. how they're treating the text. That's why we have a problem with you, and that's why we have a problem with the kinds of advice you give people. In your magazine, Grace in Focus, the Faith and Works issue, this article is an article where somebody by the, it's called uh, Q&A by the staff, so I don't know exactly who's answering these questions, but here's typical Grace Evangelical Society question and answer, okay? Somebody writes in to this magazine and says, regarding the advice you gave concerning the brother who was living with his girlfriend, what kind of thinking process results in your inexcusable advice to explain to the brother that there are no threats of hell for him anymore as he is now saved? In other words, you tell these guys there's no threat to them living in adultery or living with their girlfriend or living a promiscuous life. You tell them there's no threat of hell for him anymore because he's saved. I read it, for a person who continues to practice sexual immorality, there is every reason to counsel the opposite, that according to scripture, no adulterers will enter heaven. The indication is that he has not yet repented, stated so strongly both in Galatians and Revelation that adulterers will not enter heaven. How can you oppose these scriptures? Now this is somebody writing into you absolutely fascinated that you can tell somebody who's living in sin, unrepentant, has no cares or qualms about it, no problem, you're still eternally saved and you're going to heaven. How can you use that kind of logic? Here's your answer to this guy. Quote, 
I sympathize with your objection, but can't agree with it. Although I admire that you're trying to appeal to Scripture, I'm afraid you are actually misquoting and misunderstanding the passages you are referring to. First, repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation. Let me repeat your answer again. Repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation. John tells us many times that if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. I am assuming you mean that if we believe without repentance, we have eternal life because believing is all we need to do. I think that's what you're saying here. But we never find a single occurrence of the word repentance in the whole Gospel of John. And in the two books that tell us how to be justified before God, Galatians never, met, never mentions repentance at all. And there is only one use of repentance in Romans, Romans 2.5. And even then, it is not stated as a condition for justification. John and Paul both make faith the one and only condition for having eternal life. Repentance is important for growing in the Christian life and for temporal salvation, but not for eternal salvation. What do you think about that, Larry? Well, as you were reading that and talking about how there's not repentance required concerning eternal salvation and stuff like right. that. Uh, you know, the nice thing about these hotshot iPhones, and by the way, at the time uh, we're doing this, I, I, I just found out from a class I took uh, last week that 5G cell phones are coming out at the end of the year. And so don't buy a new one right now. Wait till the new ones come out. Okay. And, and 5G is supposed to be light years ahead of 4G. But I just threw that in for the sake of anyone that wants a little technological information. Uh, but what has your 4G told you? Uh, my 4G, I'm using old technology here. But I typed in in a, the Google search box, Repentance Bible Verses. Because he's talking, he used the word repentance. Right. Because it's not in John, you know. But uh, right here, the first selection, what is repentance? 25 Bible verses and meaning, Bible study tools. You know, and it, right away it says to repent means to turn to God and uh, turn from evil. and gets into all those definitions. But then the next selection here from United Bible Societies, 10 Bible verses about repentance. And then I just keep going down the page. 22 Bible verses about repentance. Now, I'm, I'm just checking for the word repentance. Right. Because that's what you read. Right. Uh, now, if I put in the word repent, right. you know, as I, I think about those, those guys that were killed at uh, Siloam, the, the building collapsed. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, uh, well, what do you, you know, unless you all repent... And he actually asked them to repent. Yes. Jesus Unless you said, all repent. Jesus You did. will likewise perish. I see. <laughs> and, uh, but I thought, all no, these no, wait a minute. Time out here. Time okay. out here. Good. Repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation. We never find a single occurrence of the word repentance in the whole Gospel of John. So, maybe John doesn't use the word repentance, but are you saying that it's used how many times in the Bible? Uh, repent and repentance? Well, we're seeing 22 times in one selection. We're finding 25 times in another selection. 10 times here, 12 times. Uh, you know, anyone can do this search so, on there. So, on in essence, GES has a limited amount of research on the word repentance, to yes. say the least. Yes, okay. yes. 
So the fact that John doesn't use it doesn't necessarily support the contention that repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation when all of the rest of the Bible uses it exactly. as a condition See, that's, for eternal salvation. that's classic cultism because yeah. you take a selected verse. A and small you, sample. Exactly. Yeah. But you don't take it in reference to the whole context of the entire Word of God. Right. And you wrench it, you twist it. Like it says in Second Peter chapter three verse sixteen, out of its context and make it into something that's going to actually lead to your own destruction, according to what it says there. Okay. In- now let, let me read this this passage for us, and I, I got I'm going to keep referring this. The article says, first, repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation. That's the assumption. And that's the Declaration of Grace Evangelical Society. I'm reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. That sounds to me that he's preaching a message that pertains to eternal salvation. Yes, yes, yes. yes. The gospel of God. Mm -hmm. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Jesus uses the word repent along with believe in his gospel presentation. Yes. How then can it be that repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation when Jesus himself uses it? I think we're on to something here. You mentioned mentioned later, uh, earlier on, that Simon believed and was baptized. But yet, chapter 8. But when Peter confronted him, he said, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And what does Peter want him to do? Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intentions of your heart may be forgiven you. Mm-hmm. So Peter tells Simon to repent. Mm-hmm. And yet G.E.S. says, First, repentance is not a condition for eternal salvation. What about Jesus in Matthew 4, 17? I'm just reading on my phone here. What does he say? <laughs> it says in Matthew 4, 17, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right. That sounds to me that it has something to do with eternal salvation. Yeah. Now, they say that the only time repentance is used in the book of Romans, is in 2.5. I'll take their word for it on that. Let's just read 2.5. <laughs> the Apostle Paul says, Therefore you without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same. And we get down to verse 5, and he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, um, they say that has nothing to do with justification. In the two books that tell us how to be justified before God, Galatians never mentions repentance, and the one use of repentance in Romans, Romans 2.5, even then it is not stated as a condition for justification. But unrepentance is stated as a condition for a heart storing up wrath 
at the revelation of the righteous judgment of God and reveals stubbornness and a heart that is not believing the gospel. And, you know, just looking here in Romans on this thing, it says Romans 2.4. You're doing 2.5, right? Right. Here in 2.4, the verse before, it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Are you telling me that they told a fib here? Well, that's what they, it looks like. They said here... <laughs> Galatians never mentions repentance at all, and there is only one use of repentance in Romans. Oh, this is Romans right out of Google. Five. This is Google. This let has me, to be a gospel me, fact. Let me check that out. <laughs> Romans 2.4. Well, I'll be. <laughs> Knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. They left that out. How well, convenient. Well, see, this is classic because since they're taking this unbiblical point of view in their theology... They have to leave a lot of stuff out. This is classic cultism. Right. They Because you, you can't get what they end up with by taking everything, the scripture as a whole. You have to, you know, just use what you want, cherry pick verses that fit your theology and leave out the rest. That's classic like with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They came out with a New World Translation of the Bible. And the Bible is a complete perversion that they produced. Because every place that didn't agree with what they already believed, they changed it okay. in their translation. Could we, put, could we kind of put a cap on the cult here? Okay. I'm going to read this to you and get your response to it. Okay, right. This is from the same article. Third, he's responding to this guy yes, who can't yes, believe yes. he's given this kind yes. of advice. You seem to have a different understanding of the nature of salvation than we do. You wrote, according to scripture, no adulterers will enter heaven. That's not true. What Paul actually says is this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Mm. Not heaven. The kingdom of God. Mm. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that while you're talking about entering heaven, the Apostle Paul is talking about the kingdom of God. Paul actually writes about inheriting the kingdom of God. Heaven is not in view here. This is the millennial kingdom that Christ will set up on earth with the capital being in Jerusalem. So that's the first thing to recognize. Also, you should note that Paul isn't talking about the condition for entering the kingdom. He is speaking about conditions for inheriting the kingdom. So Paul doesn't talk about eternal salvation here. He talks about the kingdom of God. And he's not talking about the kingdom of God in general. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he's not talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about inheriting the kingdom of heaven. That's it. I am absolutely out of touch with the reality of sound biblical doctrine. My, oh my. Well, you get you get that premillennial dispensationalism in there also. Oh my out of, goodness Out of nowhere. Uh, like, oh, is that... You know, and that's an eschatological view that can be so, totally controversial. For the, for the viewing audience, let's read this backwards. 
fornicationers, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners will all enter eternal life, GES. They will also enter the kingdom, but such a shame, they will not inherit the kingdom. They go to heaven, they enter the kingdom, but they don't inherit the kingdom. You can't make this stuff up, folks. This is hot GES theology, and it all stems for a refusal to understand that there is such a thing as a faulty faith. There are different kinds of faith, and they refuse to realize it, they refuse to touch it, they refuse to deal with it, and yet the scripture is full of it. And, and I, I'm sorry, but we're making you look like a bunch of fools, because that's what you are. And I'm not being cruel, I'm being honest. This is nothing but foolishness. And any solid Christian on solid ground would agree with it. That's why I think your whole organization is bogus. And if you continue in this vein, which you do in article after article, we're going to continue monitoring it and we're going to continue to expose you. Stupid things said like, oh here it is, article by Keith Pesky. The first appearance of Sojo is in James 1.22. Here, James admonishes believers to both receive the word implanted of God and be doers of the word which is able to save one's life. It seems unlikely that he has eternal life in view because James has already assured his readers that they were regenerated by the word of truth. They didn't need to be eternally saved, but they did need to grow and mature in the faith. James was concerned that filthiness and wickedness would lead these believers to an early death. <laughs> really? <laughs> and on, I can't resist and on, the, and on, it's, it's like, and a, on do we not goes. all die anyway? You know, like <laughs> Here's the question for Ken Yates, one of your other writers. He asks, Is it true... Do all believers automatically experience radical transformation that shows itself in a lifetime overflowing with an abundance of works? No! <laughs> no! Works are not automatic. How do I know this? Because Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 had to ask the Corinthians to remember their pledge to give money to the suffering Christians at Jerusalem. If works were automatic, he would not have had to ask them. You can't get more simplistic than this, Larry. Mm -hmm. And you can't get more dumbfoundingly stupid. You don't know how difficult it has been for me during this whole particular video to stay silent. Because there's almost at every turn when yeah. you're reading their stuff, I wanted to say yeah. something, read a verse, uh, do something. You had to shut me down just so you could get through all this. Suffice to say, Second Corinthians 5.17. I'm going to read it for our audience because it's an important passage. GES says, do believers automatically experience radical transformation? His answer is no. Positively not. All right? All right, let's go Second Corinthians chapter 5. I think it is verse 17, yeah. The Apostle Paul might agree with GES. Remember, no, believers do not automatically experience radical transformation that shows itself in a lifetime 
of overflowing with an abundance of good works? No. But what does the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Any man in Christ. Behold, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. New things have come. Automatically. Not to G-E-S. How about we move forward just a little bit in the Bible about our good works automatic. Are they necessary? Let's find out if they are. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, a well-known passage, a passage we all love and love to read. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work, not as a condition of works, that no one should boast. For what? We are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not optional. It's automatic. If God prepares something beforehand that we should walk in them, and God is the author of them, we are workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created for good works, and you're telling us that they're optional. And God has determined that we would walk in them before the foundations of the world. And you're saying, you're telling us No. It's optional. This is preposterous. That's why we write up your ministry. That's what we're telling you, that it's just absolutely out of touch with Scripture. You respond to this, please. Let hey, us know. Hey, you earlier in this show, you you know, mentioned that a guy could say at one point in his life he he believed in Christ. So at that, that moment, according to these guys, right. he's safe. For, right. Even if he cursed God or right. blasphemed God or whatever, right? Yes, that's true. Okay, now here's a verse... In First Corinthians, chapter sixteen, down here in verse twenty-two, it says, "If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha." Now, your understanding and that goes back to Galatians chapter one, verses right. six through nine. Right. But uh, and we talked about this in several of our videos mm-hmm. over over the years. But what does anathema mean? Now, here's a guy that these GS, GES guys would say is saved, right. but then later he throws away his faith yeah. and he curses God. Yeah. He, he blasphemes God. Yeah, right. He loves not Christ, right. as this scripture says. Right. And, he, and then he says, let him be anathema. Right. Now, people at home cursed. don't know what that word means. Can you explain? Yeah. Let him be cursed. Let him go to hell. To go to hell by the decree of, of God. God. Right. So that that kind of explodes this theory they have a little bit. Yeah. If if they're saying a person that like that can, is still saved just because he made some profession right. earlier in his life. Mm-hmm. Now it also says in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, over here in verse five, it says, "Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you." except you be reprobates. So he's talking to people that are supposed to be Christians. Right. But he's still concerned about their salvation. And he goes, well, you better just examine yourself, the way you live, everything, lest you be reprobate. Now, what does reprobate mean in the Scripture? An unbeliever. 
an unbeliever, lest you be an unbeliever. See, now he's talking to people that claim to be Christians. Right, right. And that's at the back end of Second Corinthians chapter 16, 16 oh, I'm sorry, 13, mm-hmm. verse 5. And see, I'm just looking around right. and just hitting verses that go right after these guys. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't even looking for one of these two verses I just quoted. I just saw one and I said, oh, I could use that one too. <laughs> and, and things like this are everywhere. Right. I know. And they're just ignoring all this stuff so they can give people false assurance. Yeah. What I say is a false gospel. I'm I'm trying to find the quote. I should have highlighted it where where one of the writers actually says that you can even stop, even lose your faith and still be eternally secure. That's okay. well I just answered that from First Corinthians. A second ago, verse 22 there, I think it was in chapter 16. Uh, I'm just looking at some more of these repent verses just on my iPhone. Anybody can do quick searches like this. I'm so glad there's these little things now. Instead of my big old Strong's Concordance I used to have to deal with for decades, that was, I needed a magnifying glass just to look up things. But now it's so easy in this technological age we're in. Uh, Luke 17, 3 and 4. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them and if they repent forgive them even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying i repent you must forgive them but see twice in this right here he's talking about the importance of mm-hmm. repent repentance and it's all over the place you know i could just quote verse after verse for a long time and then i got all those other places here on google but I'll, i think we're certain of prove the point here how yeah. easy this stuff is to re- refute when uh, you just yeah. bring in the entirety of the word exactly of God. exactly so at the end of the day we, we just simply believe that your emphasis on faith alone has taken you into the the troubled waters of assuring people of a salvation that they don't have Assuring That's people great. that they are in fact Christian and not to bother or worry about their sinfulness other than to live a bad life or have an early demise. This is not the way the New Testament is written. God has given these warning passages to ignite us, to enlighten us, to encourage us, to remind us, and to make certain that we have indeed a faith that works. A faith that doesn't work is a dead faith. It's just simply dead. It's not useless. It's dead. It's non-existent. And I don't believe that God gives faith and then kills it. And I don't believe that he can give a faith that we can kill either. The scripture is just not teaching this kind of nonsense. So, for those of you who are listening, that's how we would respond to be called heretics and to not know James at all, and not to understand the New Testament, and certainly to be faulty in our theology. We rest our case for the moment. And we welcome a rejoinder. We welcome a response. We would love to hear from you, especially those of you who are at Grace Evangelical Society. Anytime you would like to debate this issue, let me know. I'd be happy to comply with it. All right. Well said, brother. I just want to conclude that in my opinion, this religion is, this, this GES is nothing more than a tunnel vision 
the tunnel vision gospel that only gives you part of the whole. It doesn't give you the the whole counsel of God. And that will lead to eternally dire circumstances for those who fall into this trap. So be aware. Yeah. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Well, with that said, uh, just remember eternal salvation can be found only in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believe on him, his gospel, that he died and raised from the dead, shed his blood for sinners so they might be saved. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's Acts 16, 31 to 32. That's right. just another one, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're everywhere. You just yeah. can't avoid it, right? Yeah. You got to repent. So Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Thank you for being with us. Rob, as usual, thank you so much. Thank great, you, Larry. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Oh, no problem. I love it. Set forth these uh, things. The Lord has given us this opportunity. Yeah. You know, that He made it possible. Well, with that, God bless you all. See us again next time. Bye-bye. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.